The reading today comes from John chapter 16. The disciples' grief will turn to joy. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you come from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that you know that they know you, and the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Thanks Trish. Good morning everyone. My name's Carl, if we haven't met before. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church Only. It's really great to be here with you today. It's a, a beautiful day outside, a terrific day to be having a picnic this afternoon as well. I hope you can join us for that a little bit later on. Well, we're coming to the end of our little time in what we call the Farewell Discourse. And this morning I want to introduce you to something that I think is pretty scary. I've got a photo of it on the screen. If um, James, if you can pop that up there for me. Um, this is the now retired Titan II missile. I don't know if you know anything about these, um, but it's big, right? This is a picture of something that stands about 30 metres tall, something like eight storeys high. You kind of get the idea of looking at it from there. It's looking from the top 
down. They were designed to launch at a moment's notice, ready to go whenever they needed them to be used. And the really scary thing about these Titan II missiles is that the top part of it is a nuclear warhead that has 9 million tonnes of TNT explosive power. Now, if you're anything like me, that means nothing, right? 9 million tonnes of TNT. Let me just give you some perspective about how large that warhead is. The combined explosive force of every single bomb that was dropped in World War II, including the two nuclear ones, it's estimated that the explosive power of every bomb was 3 million tonnes of TNT. This warhead is 9 million tonnes. It's shockingly huge, right? These things were horrendous. The warhead sits on top of a 30-metre-tall cylinder, which is filled with two different types of rocket fuel that, when mixed, explode violently. It sounds like a good idea now, doesn't it? Back in the Cold War era, these, there were 50 of these missiles buried in bunkers around the US. And because they were needed, or at least thought need, to be needed, to go off at a minute's notice, they were always under constant maintenance. And I want to tell you about some maintenance that happened on the 18th of September 1980. It was 6.30pm on a Thursday night, and two service crewmen were checking the pressure in the fuel tanks of these, this missile. It was routine maintenance, and they were working in a silo located in the outback or paddock remote part of Arkansas. The task they were required to do was to go right up to the top of the missile and they needed a special tool, a long torque wrench, but unfortunately on this particular afternoon they'd forgotten the torque wrench. So they looked down in their tool bag that they had with them on the top of their their extension ladder, their their scissor lift, and they had a socket set. So they said, rather than going down to the bottom, we'll just use the socket set to undo this nut. But unfortunately the socket came loose as they were doing it and it dropped off, ding, 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 banging on the side of the missile, the side of the silo, all the way down to the bottom until, bang, the socket ruptured a hole in the bottom of the fuel tank and toxic, highly explosive fuel starts leaking out. Now, you can imagine the alarm bells start going off. They'd train for this, but but really, this is like end-of-the-world kind of stuff we're talking about here. Hundreds of tonnes of highly toxic, explosive fuel and a warhead, nine megatons of TNT, sitting on the top of all of this. I wonder if you were responsible for this silo, how you'd feel at this point in time. What would you do? You've got nine million tons of TNT about to explode in a bunker filled with toxic, highly explosive fuel. Well, here's what happened. They ended up sending two brave air crew into the silo and they were told to kind of turn on an exhaust fan that might slowly take away some of this toxic and explosive gas. Unfortunately, the fan had a little um, faulty electrical bit in it. It caused an arc and there was an almighty explosion. The the, the, The bunker just exploded. There was a lid that kind of sat on the ground level that covered this Um, missile, it was supposed to open up and let the missile out if it needed to go. That weighed 740 tonnes, blown clear of the missile bunker. And the second stage of the missile exploded and the, the nuclear warhead was catapulted way up into the air. It was a disaster. One man died in the explosion and many more were injured, some of them quite badly. But at the end of the day, it was nowhere near as bad as what it might have been. So the next morning they found the nuclear warhead. It was about 30 metres away from the entrance gate of this compound. It had been blown clear, but it was intact. 
I reckon if you were in charge of the base that morning when you found the warhead, you'd probably take that as the outcome from this disaster. A man had died, sure, but the nuclear device hadn't exploded. That's a good outcome, I think, if you're in charge of this base. A remote paddock in Arkansas had been blown to smithereens, but America, as a country, it still existed. It's still there today. Now, I think this is a a, a horrendous story. It's also a very fascinating story in many ways, something I never knew had happened until a, a few months ago. And I'm telling you this, but you might be wondering, what does it have to do with John's gospel? It's a great story. What does it have to do with John's gospel? Well, here's the connection for one of Jesus' disciples. His departure, his leaving, I want you to see it's a disaster. It's going to be horrendous for them because he's about to be killed on a cross, beaten, stripped and mocked. And I don't want us for a minute to underestimate the agony that our God suffered on our behalf in Jesus dying on the cross. And yet, just like this missile crisis that I've been telling you about, the ending, the final outcome, it's nowhere near as bad as what it might have been. John says, Jesus says, sorry, in John chapter 16 a number of times, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Here's the truth. When he says, in a little while you will see me no more, what he actually means is you won't be seeing me anymore because I'll be dead, buried in a tomb. And even at this point in the story, I don't think the disciples have quite got their heads around this yet. Their Lord, their King and their friend, in a little while he will be dead and buried, an innocent man killed as a criminal. And for a disciple of Jesus, by by any measure, by whatever way you look at it, this is a disaster. Let me read to you from verse 20 of chapter 16. If you've got Bibles, electronic or paper, have them open and just have a look what it says here in verse 20 of chapter 16. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve. Because he's dead. We're going to be dead. But here's the thing, your grief will turn to joy. See, his death will be terrible, but do you see the change, the but in this? But your grief will turn to joy. See, his death, it's only for a little while. And despite how terrible his death is, the most amazing and glorious thing is also part of this. The thing that's almost beyond belief, outside of this world, he will be dead You'll see him no more, disaster, but it's not the end of the road. The warhead hasn't exploded, so to speak, because Jesus will rise. He won't stay dead because he's the resurrection and the life. Jesus has told us this a number of times already, hasn't he, in John's Gospel? And with the benefit of hindsight, we know him to be absolutely correct at this point. We know how the story ends. But as we work our way through these chapters, I just want you to see another reminder here that Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He's in control and he knows that as bad as this is, as bad as the grief that the disciples are going to experience, he knows that it will soon turn to joy for them. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the outcome. He's in control. Come with me in your Bibles if you've got them over to chapter 20 of John, to verse 19 of chapter 20. We're skipping ahead in the story a bit here. We're 
chapter 20, Jesus has already been killed. He's been crucified and he's been buried. And now at this point, it's been a few days since the disciples have seen Jesus. It's been a little while. And here's what John tells us in verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and sighed. What does it say? The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Pretty great, isn't it? He knows what's going on. In chapter 20, Jesus is back in flesh and the disciples are overjoyed. Back in chapter 16, remember what Jesus has been saying? In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. I just want us to be really clear. Can you see what's going on here with the benefit of the hindsight that we have of knowing how this story ends, knowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus? We can see that's what he's speaking about here, isn't it? He'll be gone for a little while because he'll be dead and buried, but it's only for a little while. And I think this is the gist of what's happening in the second half of chapter 16. Jesus is reiterating to his disciples that he's about to go. But this is not the disaster it might be because, well, he's going to rise again. And in many ways, this is nothing new for us, is it? We've been working our way through this section of John and and right from the end of chapter 13, he's been saying a similar sort of thing, hasn't he? And so as we read it today, we might think that the disciples are a little bit dense at this point. But in their defense, really, there is no precedent for this sort of thing, is there? There is no precedent. This has never happened before that a person who would be dead would rise again. Well, this morning we're at the end of what we call the farewell discourse. And since it's called that because really since the end of chapter 13, Jesus has essentially been saying goodbye to his disciples and he's been preparing them for what lies ahead. And over the last few weeks, I've been trying to help you see that the lessons that, the, that Jesus gives to his disciples, that they are important for us today. And because we're at the end of our little series today, rather than just focusing on chapter 16 today, I wanted to spend a bit of time going back over some of the other things that we've seen over the last few weeks. We started in chapter 13, when I showed you this picture that James will put up on the screen behind me of the Last Supper. It's a very famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Now, I'm not actually sure where Leonardo got his information from, because it looks to me like they're sitting on table sitting on chairs at a table, we read in John chapter 13 that they're more likely reclining at the table, but whatever the case, this is the last meal that they are sharing together. And we know even from chapter 13 that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. He says in verse 33, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, Where I am going, you cannot come. And yet, despite the fact that the very next day Jesus will be dead, Jesus is using this opportunity, this time, this last meal with his disciples to teach and to train and to encourage them. And the thing that we saw from chapter 13 is that he wants them to serve each other. He wants them to love each other like he loves. And so in a, in a very dramatic kind of actions speak louder than words kind of way, Jesus strips down to his undergarments and he gets a clean towel and a bowl of water and he washes the disciples' feet. 
Now, I'm not sure um, how much you've thought about this over the last few weeks. But as I keep coming back to this and thinking about this in my mind, I think, wow. Because here is a man who knew the incredible power that he had. All things have been placed under his feet. And yet he, he stoops down low. And he moves around the room, washing the disciples' feet. And I take it that even when he came to Judas, he, he knew Judas was about to betray him, and yet he still washed Judas' feet. And he's saying more in this action, isn't he? Than this that he's willing to get down and wash dirty feet. He's also, if you remember, foreshadowing how the laying down of his life on the cross will also wash the disciples and his followers clean of their sins. And he's leading and training the disciples as to how they are to live. What are they to be? Well, they're to be the sort of people who will serve one another. Jesus' people are those who are willing to stoop down low and love one another. And I wonder for you, over the last few weeks, have you had an opportunity to practice this, to put into place some of this? To, have you been able to serve someone else, to demonstrate in a practical way? Not your power or your status or your authority or your rank, but have you been able to demonstrate your love? and your care, and your concern. Because that's what Jesus is encouraging his disciples to do. Get down low and serve each other. Now I've got a bowl of water here, and a towel, and I'm going to put this up here to kind of physically remind you of this section of John's Gospel. Kind of imagine Jesus walking around with a bowl, probably not a glass one, but a bowl and a towel, and washing the disciples' feet. On chapter 14, Jesus again tells his disciples that he is going away. But chapter 14, if you remember, I think it's a chapter of of comfort and hope and security. I spoke about it being a little bit like a security blanket, and I've got a blanket on the piano there as well. It's something that you can kind of wrap around you, a blanket, but this chapter as well, when you need a bit of support. Because here in, in chapter 14, we have this great image that Jesus shares with his disciples. And this is the image. He says, I'm leaving so that I can prepare a place for you in my father's home. If that doesn't warm you up, if the idea of Jesus going to, to prepare a place for you in his father's house doesn't do it for you, then it's also in this chapter that Jesus tells his disciples that although he's going... He will never leave them as orphans. And they won't be left as orphans for two reasons. Firstly, he's going to send an advocate, the spirit of truth, who will be with them always. And secondly, he won't leave them as orphans because he's not going forever. He's coming back. So here's the blanket, the comfort, to remind you of chapter 14, that Jesus is going, but that he'll send an advocate And that he'll come back. And I hope over the last few weeks you've been able to see some of the common themes in the farewell discourse. That he's going, but he'll send an advocate. It'll be hard, but it won't be forever. But it's fair to say that for the disciples, even if they get sent the Spirit, the challenge 
for them for the rest of their life is going to be fairly severe. Last week we learned from chapter 15 that Jesus says they should not be surprised if the world hates them. And it's not only the world, the religious leaders of the day, they'd also be seeking to kill them. You know, of the original 12 disciples, the Bible only records the death of two of them, Judas, who betrays Jesus, and James, the son of Zebedee, who's executed by Herod in about 44 AD. You can read about that in the book of Acts. But although the Bible doesn't record the stories of the rest of the disciples, other sources and history tell us that many of the disciples suffered greatly in the course of their lives. Peter and Paul, or Paul wasn't strictly one of the 12 apostles at this point, they were thought to have been killed in Rome. Peter by being hung upside down on a cross and Paul by beheading. And indeed it's only John, the author of this gospel, it's only John who seems of all the disciples to have been the one who died just of natural causes. The rest of them were persecuted to the point of death. Jesus knows that life is going to be tough for the disciples. Today, there are still many places in the world where being a Christian is enough to warrant your death, simply being Christian. We are very fortunate, aren't we, to live here in Australia, and even more fortunate, I think, to live in this beautiful part of Adelaide. But even still, sometimes we might feel the pinch of being a disciple of Jesus. And if so, the question then that springs out of this chapter is, what are we to do? How do we cope with that? And Jesus' instructions are really clear, I think, at this point. He says, stick with him. He's the true vine, and so we're to stick in him as a branch of that vine. We're to draw strength and nourishment that he provides. We're to stick with him because only when we're in him, stuck with him, are we able to bear fruit. You might remember the warning from chapter 15, verse 5, where it says, apart from him, we can do nothing in terms of bearing good fruit. And the warning I had for you that week was, well, because so many of us are successful and and witty and intelligent and resilient and, and all those things that you all are, the danger is, I think, that we might think we can produce fruit on our own. And yet Jesus is really clear at this point. He says, you can do nothing apart from me. And so we must remain in him. We must stick with him. What does that mean? Well, it means one thing in particular, we must obey his commands. And what is his command? Well, we read about that in chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. This is what Jesus says. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And so I think if we're to summarize chapter 15, it's saying something like this, keep on going, be productive, don't drift off into obscurity. Don't let Jesus going, his death, distract you from the task of bearing fruit. That's a very clear message, particularly from the start of John chapter 16. And so Jesus says, he tells us this, that we would not fall away. And so that we don't drift, now remember I've got my canoe paddle here, to remind you not to drift away. Don't be like a canoe without a paddle. Now I wonder, you might have now, as we've sort of recapped this, you've seen this common theme over and over again. Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going, 
but that he'll come back again. And you might be wondering at this point, why does he say it so many times? Are the disciples just dense? Are they a little bit soft between the ears at this point? Well, I think there's another reason why Jesus might keep speaking about his departure and return. I think it's something to do for us today. I think he wants us today, as readers of this gospel, to see how monumental this event is. See, he mentions it time and time again, I think not just to prepare the 11 disciples for what's about to happen, but also to prepare us today to see this event, Jesus' death and his resurrection, as the turning point in the history of the whole world. By this event, Jesus overcomes the world. This is the event in which his hour has finally come, when he's glorified and where the Father is glorified. This is the event that Jesus came to do. And John, our gospel writer, I reckon he doesn't want us to miss the significance of what's about to happen here. And the repetition is there, I think, to capture our attention. After Easter, we're going to come back to chapter 17 of John because the whole of that chapter is a magnificent prayer that Jesus prays and it is worth our attention. But for now, I want you to just notice in these five verses some of the things that uh, Jesus prays at the start of chapter 17. Let me read to you the first five verses of chapter 17. After this, after Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. If you've got your Bibles open there, can you see the transition point between the end of chapter 16 and the start of chapter 17? The meeting that Jesus had been having with his disciples in the upper room of the house, well, that meeting's now over. He said all he wanted to say to his disciples. And now Jesus turns his attention in prayer to God the Father. And he prays this prayer that we just read the first five verses of. This is the longest prayer of Jesus in John's Gospel. And the first part of the prayer is that the time or the hour has come. Do you notice that? John, our our Gospel writer, has, has slipped this phrase, the hour has come or not come, into the story right back since the start of chapter 2 at the wedding feast. There his hour had not yet come in chapter 2. And when people attempt to seize him in chapter 7 and he somehow escapes, there his hour had not yet come. And when he denounced the Pharisees and they tried to attack, attack him and he escaped, that was because his hour had not yet come. But here in chapter 17, in verse 1, the hour has come. It's time for the Son to be glorified and for the Son to glorify the Father. And you might be familiar, you might be in, have been in church for a while and so the idea of the glorification of the Father and the Son might be kind of a familiar thing to you but I want you to also just see how bizarre this must have been for the original writers and readers. I wonder how the original 11 disciples would have thought as they watched their king killed. Did they see it as glorious? 
Or did they think of it simply as a disaster that had fallen upon their Jesus, their king, their leader? As they see him killed on a cross, it must have felt like their world was collapsing around them. And yet Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me that I may glorify you. His death is no disaster. It's the plan of God. It's always been the plan of God. Because the sun will rise. Easter's not too far away, isn't it? We're going to celebrate just in a, in a month or two's time. Such a powerful day for us as Christians, isn't it? Easter Sunday, when we get together and we say, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And this is what's going on here. The Son has been given authority. He's been given authority through that triumphant cross work that He does. It's the means by which humans can be saved. How are they saved? Well, it says here, through knowing the true God and Jesus Christ who was sent by the Father. How do we know the true God? Well, Jesus has been clear about this over the last few chapters, hasn't he? God the Father is revealed in God the Son. He's revealed in the person of Jesus. In fact, we know God the Father through the Son. We can't know God the Father without knowing the Son. What does it mean to know the Son? Well, I think in part it means having head knowledge of who he is. But I think it also involves fellowship and relationship and trust. And this is just the start of this amazing prayer in chapter 17. I'd love you to read over that prayer in the next few weeks. We'll come back to it after Jack's had a bit of time with us in the book of Galatians. But this prayer, it puts beyond any doubt the idea that Jesus' death was a disaster, an unknown thing, an accident or a bad result that was just papered over. It was no mistake. And his resurrection was not just a fluke. It was all part of the plan of God. Some people, some scientists, some people who know these sorts of things, think that it's a bit of a fluke that the warhead on top of that Titan II missile did not explode. Had that have happened, the world would have been a very different place. Here's the thing. The death and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus is not a fluke. It's not a surprise, not to Jesus, not to his Father. Rather, it's the means by which they are both glorified. And I want you to see today, it's also the turning point in history, particularly for us as followers of him, because it's the means for our salvation. And we pray for us. Father, we thank you for this little section in John that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks that remind us of some great things as followers of you. That we are to be the sort of people who would love one another, be willing to serve one another, to get down low, despite the lofty position that we may have. Thank you for the example of Jesus who is willing to wash his disciples' feet. May we be the sort of people who are like that as well. Father, please help us to stick with you so that we don't drift away, but in doing so we'd bear good fruit. We thank you for this powerful reminder that you know exactly what you're doing with the world, that your son's death was no mistake, but rather it was the means by which you and he together are glorified. Amen.